1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Catherine Russell, author of The Cinema of Barbara Stanwyck 26 Short Essays on a Working Star, published in 2023 by the University of Illinois Press. Catherine Russell is a distinguished university research professor of cinema at Concordia University in Montreal. Welcome, Catherine.
0: Thank you. Nice nice to be here and thank you so much for inviting me to talk about my book.
1: I can't wait to talk about your book and Barbara Stanwyck. So, I read the whole book and I read the essays out of order and I thoroughly enjoyed it. You come across as, I mean, you are the uber fan of Barbara Stanwyck. Mere mortals like me think, "Oh yeah, I'm a big admirer of Barbara Stanwyck." And then I read this book and I'm like, "Wow, this is the uber fan." So, let's start there and let's start with the title. In what ways was Barbara Stanwyck a true working star?
0: Well, she was a hard worker, and she earned a reputation for being a very highly uh, professional person on sets, and it really earned her a lot of respect amongst crews and directors and cast members, and this is over a 60-year career. And... um, So that's part of it. She worked hard, and I also wanted to shift the focus from the actress as an icon or an image um, to issues of labor. And um, Stanwyck was never attached to any particular studio, and so she was a freelance uh, worker most of her career. She'd have short contracts with many, many different studios and and constantly renegotiating them. And so, uh, you know, good acting actually makes labor invisible and it was important to me to 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 separate her from her image um, and and look at her as a woman who has agency and and actually played a role in the industry as well as roles on screen
1: yeah it's hard to watch a barbara stanwick movie and not and not think of her as barbara stanwick is that you know what i'm saying like you can't watch Cary grant and not think of him being Cary grant so to speak right um, so let's go into the bigger question then there's a lot of subjects you could have chosen, right? Why does she fascinate you? I mean, I imagine you had to live with Barbara Stanwyck for a long time to do a deep dive like this. I mean, she made close to 100 films. So what is it about Barbara Stanwyck that makes you say, all right, I'm going to take the plunge now and really go go deeply into this subject?
0: Well, I, I, I'm a fan like you are, like many people are. So, um, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of time with somebody, (laughs) Barbara a good, is is a good choice. Uh, From a scholarly perspective. I I was interested in her, interested in her because she's so full of contradictions. And I wanted to kind of unpack those contradictions, starting from the fact that, you know, she looks tough, she's strong, she, she has become a feminist icon. There's a lot of speculation about her sexuality. um, And yet she really doesn't in her personal life conform to any of those ideals. You know, she was a Republican, I I find that she's a bit homophobic when challenged on that issue. Uh, She was straight, she was conservative, um, and yet she still managed to shift the terms of femininity over the course of her career through the roles she chose and and through her performance style and so on. So I find that a really interesting contradiction and, and, really why I got on to her is because I wanted to write about a book about Hollywood. It seems like a weird thing to say, but I've written books about many different things and I really wanted to get into Hollywood. I loved, I'm, you know, I'm i I'm a cinephile. i T te- I've been teaching Hollywood for, for a long time. And I found that, Her career provided such a great roadmap through the industry and through great films and also through lesser known films, you know, which are important to me. And she kind of served as a lever or or a wedge that with which I could open up the story of Hollywood and try and look at it from a woman's perspective, because we don't have, you know, like there's not enough directors. And so people say, Oh, we can't do that. Well, yes, we can, you know? And I think she contributed as much as any director to the overall image um, and, and feel of of Hollywood as a cultural industry.
1: That's a great point about her image of that, how hard it is to pin down and how your book makes you realize how much it changed. And it's funny, a, a new question just popped in my mind when you were speaking is that, of all the images that could have been chosen for the cover of your book, this is really interesting, right? Because you would think you would think it would be a picture of her as Phyllis Dietrichson or, or, or the Lady Eve or, or these, you know, but I, this was come from the cover of Parade magazine, right? Can you talk a little about the cover image for our listeners and and how, how it was arrived at?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was not actually, as far as I can tell, linked to any particular shoot, you know, it's 1955 she wears a similar outfit outfit in 40 guns. I thought it was 40, 40 guns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is earlier than that. Yeah. Um, I found it in an archive uh, and, you know, it, and it seemed, I, I basically shot a photograph of, of it, of it. Cause it was so unique. And then, you know, researching it, we found that it, hadn't really appeared anywhere and it's nice to have an image that isn't familiar image and um, the photographer is um, sort of has disappeared it was really difficult to find any of his errors or anything I mean that's a story that somebody else can follow up on is like who is this guy and how did he come to shoot such a fantastic photo I have no idea but Parade Magazine was an insert so it was in all of the you know, uh, like municipal papers. I found it in a, in a Texan newspaper, you know, uh, but no, I found it in the archive, but that's where it was from, uh, the Al Peso times. So,
1: yeah. So our listeners can go on the website and see the image or see it wherever you get the book. But it was funny because that image reminded me of how versatile she was as an actor, right? Because she, like, this does not look like the same person who might be in the Lady Eve or, 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 you know, other movies like that. So it was like, I, I thought it was such an interesting choice of cover. Yeah. Thanks. So let's talk about the structure of your book, which is also very interesting and not, not what I would expect and not what a lot of readers would expect. It's, co- it's what you call an ABC dairy. Uh-huh. And, and you point out at the very beginning that there are many biographies of Stanwick. You, you have a great line. You say, all of them reverent and idolatrous. <laughs> right at the beginning, reverent and idolatrous. So talk about what makes your book different and why you made the decision to not write another straight biography.
0: Uh, well, my book is different. It is a scholarly work, and I draw on a lot of feminist theory and so on, uh, and uh, so that's why it's not hagiography. Um, I also I'm not trained as a biographer. I didn't want to write a biography. I find that taking a like a non linear approach is a way of opening things up and looking at things from different perspectives and put different parts of her career side by side uh, to make the interesting kind of connections. And, um, you know, it took me a while to come up with this it, in French, it's called abecederie. So you, it's a um, more familiar term, perhaps in French, and it's a bit, it's a kind of a classical style of, of, of bookmaking, I think. Um, and it really helped me to organize all I've been researching for years, and I had all these notes, and I had to figure out how to put them together. And, you know, may, having the chapters, with, num- with letters as a title is a really arbitrary, random way of organizing things, but in it, it enabled me to pick up the themes I was interested in, you know, uh, like uh, riding and stunts, for example, and also the films that I wanted to focus on, like Stella Dallas and No Man of Her Own, and uh, and the people whose, whose paths she crossed with you know and like edith head and fred mcmurray and so it's a bit it's a bit of a random way of going about things uh but i do kind of cross-reference if you're you know because different films will turn up in different chapters and so i have a little handy referencing way in case you want to follow up on different ideas yeah
1: and i read and i read the essays out of order and it seems to me that that would be something you would actually endorse
0: Oh, totally. Totally. I, I wrote them in order just because I it was a good way of getting through the projects, you know, most of which happened during the pandemic. And I was like, what will I do this week? You know, I'll write, you know, chapter R. And and, and so me, so I don't like to read it in order because I find it like my, that's my my thinking goes. But so I think it's better if people read them out of order and, and find connections that maybe I even missed.
1: Great. So let's, I thought our listeners would, would enjoy hearing your take. On some of her most famous films, and they're you know the, the films that drew a lot of us to Barbara Stanwyck. So I want to start with those. So let's start with Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder, 1944. You you actually say in this chapter at some point in this chapter like every single second of this film has already been analyzed, you know backwards and forwards, right? But this is in the C chapter for Crimes of Passion, and you use Walter Benjamin's idea, and Walter Benjamin comes up in your book a lot. You use Walter Benjamin's idea of the destructive character to talk about Phyllis, which is the role that Barbara Stanwyck plays there. So what I want to ask you is what is a destructive character and how does that whole idea help us better appreciate Phyllis and, and what Stanwyck does with that role?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. But first of all, I just want to point out that Walter Benjamin wrote the arcades project, which is an abysadary. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just pointing that out. Um, yeah. And the destructive character um, you know, I wanted to use that idea of a dangerous woman because this was a really a new iteration of the new woman. She was like she was a she embodied the new woman of the 30s, along with many other actors. Right. Um, and that was a sort of the sexy Depression era. Uh, baby face new woman but in now we're in 1943 and it's a new new woman and uh it's a much more a different kind of modernity it's an she's an anti-heroine she is a a dangerous woman who's been mystified as a femme fatale which femme fatale is always meaning like that's really about the man no what about her you know and i'm following here other feminist theorists and uh they've been a, a number of other other theorists have rethought this figure as a tragic character, and it's a role normally given to to men in literary and film studies. Uh, but Phyllis Dietrichson is a character in her own right. And it, for Stanwyck herself, it took a lot of courage for her to take on this role, because it was really unprecedented, you know, to be a bad woman at this point. After all, she was a bad babyface, you know. Lily, Lily was a bad, a bad was was a bad woman way back when. But after playing all these maternal roles um, in the late '30s, um, it was it was um, a big move for her, and uh, you know, it was Billy Wilder who convinced her to do it I think she plays it as a kind of a form of satire and again if you think of uh, a baby face it's not unlike the baby face character who also were a wig, right? Um, and the wig and the sunglasses make it uh, a, a very different kind of performance. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's groundbreaking. It was a totally new type of performing, um, as well as a new kind of uh, character. And it kind of signals the death of the more progressive women of the 30s and points forward to the paranoid women of the 30s um and you know phyllis dietrichson is far from paranoid um and she's in she's in total control of the narrative you know she it's it's her story and the men at the end of the film can't figure out what the hell happened to them you know um she dies and thus she's she's a tragic figure and she's she's dangerous to the status quo she's dangerous to the patriarchy
1: yeah, straight down the line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> straight down the line, she says. Well, you just reminded me when you talked about her as a tragic figure and about the wig of the sunglasses, it's that, you know, in the, in the whole film, Phyllis, you know, you have Barbara Stanwyck playing Phyllis, but Phyllis is also playing this other version of herself, right? That she's always like Phyllis Dietrich is always on stage. Does that make sense? Yeah." Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's a theme that runs throughout the book of her playing double characters. Thelma Jordan is another, you know, film noir. Uh, uh, no Man of Her Own is another version of that. And these sort of nested performances that Stanwick really excelled in, in my opinion. Yeah.
1: I just, I recently saw The Strange Love of Martha Ivers and that's another, like, it's like a little, like a Russian stacking doll where there's the actor and the performance and the performance and trying to pretend. And so that's a great point. I never thought of that. So let's move on. Well, actually, let's move backwards in time to The Lady Eve, Preston Sturges, 1941. Now this is in the L chapter and you call The Lady Eve an especially good example of the threat of a woman's power. So you also point out that many viewers see Hopsey, who's the Henry Fonda, you know, Rube, so to speak, in the film, that many people see him as a hero. So I want to go back to that quotation. What specifically does, does Eve and Stanwick threaten? And then how does that threat play out?
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Well, um, she's a threat again to the social order and the patriarchy, and she her, her threat is her, th- her pow- the power of performance. You know, she basically plays two women in this case, very overtly two women. And she, she dupes her love interest, the, the Henry Fonda character, but she doesn't dupe us as the audience at all. Um, and it's this ability to shape shift and manipulate men um, that she uses to basically crash the class system and, st- and stage manage her own story. And um, you know the end of the film I know my my own reading of it is somewhat idiosyncratic uh, because I feel like the ending completely undermines the narrative when I sort of say who, who that who would marry a man who doesn't even recognize you you know um, and so Sturgis gives her this fantastic script but at the end of the day um, it's Hopsy who who wins her and Certainly appeared to critics of the time as the hero of the story, and like again, I want to say, you know, shift the focus and say, no, wait a second, who's the hero here? She's yeah. the one who, again, stage managed it and and had agency as a character throughout the entire film.
1: Yeah, and especially in the second half, like you said, yeah. she literally stage manages the whole the whole return to yeah. Hoppy. You also just reminded me that Hopsey is a lot like Walter, right? Is that like Walter in, in Double Indemnities that neither neither man can imagine that they're being manipulated by this person they thought they were superior to? Because Walter thinks he's got her; he's calling her baby the whole time and lighting the matches with his thumb. And and Henry Fonda, so to speak, you know, he thinks, "Well, I, I'm a, I'm morally better than you, right?" Yeah. And then yeah. She, she flips everything on him. Exactly, as well.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and and the 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 story of the Lady Eve is 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 a gold digger type of story. You know, she's looking for cl- class mobility, you know, and there's a famous line at the beginning, let you know, let us not be commoners, you know, uh, yeah, uh, crooks, but not commoners. And uh, she does, she manages, she successfully, you know, breaks through, uh, but strictly by conning her way through.
1: Yeah. Do you think, and, and then do you think that the fun of the film was when President Sturgis makes that character say, well, however, what would happen if she actually developed feelings for her mark?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, you, right? yeah <laughs> well, that that is what happens, basically. <laughs> right. And and so she does develop feelings for him. and But does he develop feelings for her? Not clear. He doesn't know who she is. Yeah. D- doesn't recognize her at all. Right. So it's, like, so absurd.
1: Right. Anyway, yeah. Which is also funny why, because now you have me thinking about this movie a lot. That's where all the, I think... That we're we're like on her side, so to speak, right? Yeah. So that's why all the laughs are so good on the train where she starts going through her resume all of all her past loves and everything, and he's so shocked. But we we're laughing with her. Yeah. And he's yeah. horrified by her, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and he's the fall guy, literally. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, literally he falls at the beginning, right? When she trips him. Excellent. So let's go further back in time, one more, to 1937 and King Vidor, Stella Dallas. Now you point out that this film has received more scholarly attention than any other. Of Stanwyck's films, and you bring up the question of the degree, and I and I this was probably my favorite chapter and the favorite thing you do in the whole book. You bring up the degree to which Stella knows what she's doing as she goes throughout the film. Because I think that's a great it's a very, very gray area if you watch Stella Dallas, right? You also review some of the debates about the film. So let's talk about her for a minute. What is your take? On Stella Dallas, on the, on the, on the, I know it's a big question, right? But someone says to you, "Like, well, how much does she know what's going on? Like, what's the movie really about? Like, talk about that."
0: Well, you know, the reason it was such an important film for feminist criticism was because it foregrounded the question of identification. You know, and and some feminists said said we we identify with her, a woman who has to make this big sacrifice, and and other people sort of say, "No, we identify with all of the." The women in the film, and who see the, the 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 impossible kinds of decisions and contradictions that women have in in uh, patriarchy. Um, and then it was actually St- Stanley Cavell who who suggested um, that actually St- maybe maybe Stella knows what she's doing, you know, and and maybe she she she's she's just play acting again all the time um and my take is basically that we can't there's no knowledge this is a fictional character you know does she know or does she not know it's the inscrutability that that stanwick embeds in this performance and she actually said when she, she really wanted the role and one of the reasons she wanted she says well i get to play two women you know she gets to play two women, one knows, one doesn't know. And she and they. she's not gonna reveal, it's this kind of in, interior contradiction within her performance. And so I, I, basically I'm just pointing out that all this fuss and all this discussion about, does she know or doesn't she know and who do we identify with? Well, she makes herself to be very difficult to identify with, even though she's a completely sympathetic character. Uh, But we don't know her her decision making process, because she's not going to tell us. And, and, and this was something that she brought to the film, completely independently. And, you know, that was her contribution to the whole film. And so that's why we talk about why it has become such an important film.
1: Yeah, we do, we're not privy to her decision making process, and and at a lesser performance or a lesser film because the whole film is unbelievably great. In a lesser film, it, it, the the scene where she overhears her daughter on the train and starts weeping and real like that's supposed to be oh the moment. But you can also watch the soda shop scene where she barges in, and and you you almost can't believe you're like, is she is Barbara Stanwyck overdoing it? Is Stella overdoing it? Are there, is 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 Barbara Stanwyck trying to play somebody who doesn't know she's overdoing it? And every time you think you, you you grab the answer, something else happens.
0: Yeah, and just before the soda pop scene, she crosses the golf course, and this guy, like these these gay guys, and, and they sort no, they they sort of make a, a gesture like that refers to kind of something gay, which signals to me. Oh, this is drag. She's you know, Stella Dallas is doing drag. <laughs> so, you know, there's a completely different way of reading it, but it's like she's again, she's in total control.
1: Yeah, she's in to- and and so let's talk what what do you make of the ending then? If she, if she's in total control, like and she 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 watches the you know, the wedding ceremony through the bars and she walks away. I mean that that's that could have been one reading when the film came out, but if, how do you read that moment now?
0: She's proud and free.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, why not? why not but she's also missing her daughter you can you can have two things at once that's the thing you know and just because she sacrificed her daughter doesn't mean she won't be uh, happily ha- live happily ever after as a single woman does it so but we don't but w- the, you know she's a fictional character she doesn't have to she doesn't have to be either way she can she can register both
1: yeah, that's great. Because if the film went on for five more minutes, it might start to answer its own questions, and that's mm-hmm. what's great about where it ends.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah, great. So, you know, we talked about what Stella wears. You talked about her on the golf course, and that's some of the debate around Stella revolves around what she wears and you have a chapter on Edith Head who everybody knows you know who Edith Head was she designed the costumes for 24 of Stanwyck's films although ironically not still in Dallas but you raised the idea that Edith Head dressed Stanwyck in different ways to match the different stages of her career I thought that was that was all new to me their their relationship so talk about their relationship and how she dressed Stanwyck
0: well, I mean, within you know, I, I it, it, their relationship is fairly well known in the sense that when when they started working together on Lady Eve, they'd done one previous film previously, but Lady the Lady Eve, it set both of their careers on fire. It did as much for Edith Head as it did for Stanwyck, um, and Stanwyck had. Uh, really avoided being glamorous up until then she kind of identified with the sort of cosme- luxe cosmetics natural girl um, but then when she's um, in, in after the Lady Eve she's in the Ball of Fire and in Double Indemnity also dressed by uh, Edith Head these women are a little bit sleazy and um, you know that's that that's a very special way of dressing that's still still sympathetic characters you know in a time when when these women were you know sleazy women were not normally uh looked upon well um and uh I mean overall i think you know she's stanwick had a fairly butch tough persona and uh edith had really helped her cultivate a feminine image that was still tough and that's what the sleaziness comes in and and this is both on screen and off so uh, Stanwyck hired Head to uh, make her everyday outfits, you know, for going out, which is important, you know. Until they met, she didn't she didn't dress like a movie star. Um, and then I think in the nineteen forties, when uh, Head does some outfits for her for the westerns, like the Furies, and and Stanwyck is wearing trousers. Well, here it gives her an opportunity to be, you know, an older woman still a star and still fashion forward because you know trousers was like again the new new woman you know all invented all over again and uh, and then stanwick did the her gave her jeans again you know for the uh, roustabout film in 1964 with elvis presley and so you know there's ways in which they evolved together in important kinds of ways
1: yeah, that's something that, that people would take for granted, but that's a great point. And I, and it again, you're making me realize a lot of things that I um sleaziness is a great word for for Phyllis, right? How do you how do you address sleeziness And and I wonder if original viewers of that film when it came out could is it possible for us to even respond to her in the same way as a Wilder's original audience?
0: No, they that it, it not necessarily. It's hard to say. I've never I didn't Uh, I've never seen any commentary from women except that there is some there is some uh, uh, fans who uh, admired her decision you know to be a bad girl and to play this kind of down this woman who's like usually the butt of the joke right Um, and to make her into a sympathetic character so so it was a bold move but women went along with it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's terrific. So something also brand new to me was the chapter on the Barbara Stanwyck show, which was a TV show of hers that ran on NBC for one season, 1960 to 1961. Now, this show featured Stanwyck and recognizable stars in, in standalone melodramas. You point out that it's on Amazon, and it is, and our, our listeners can go check it out. But rather than gush over it, you note that Stanwick—you say she couldn't come down—that's your phrase—she couldn't come down to the small screen. And here's what you call it: you call it a melodrama of missed opportunity and too lateness. Yeah, so, so talk about that.
0: Um, I mean, I, I maybe I didn't gush over the show, but I really think it's great, and I highly recommend watching it. Talk about the
1: episodes. I'm sorry, that are really yeah. great. Yeah.
0: Um. And again, my analysis kind of focuses on the contradictions that are embedded in it. And by not being able to come down, I mean that they're referring to these like introductions that she does. And it's like, she never learned or was never directed to do directed dress. And everybody was television. You talk to the camera and you're intimate, you know, Um, everybody, even Hitchcock could do it, you know, and, uh, and she either didn't want to, I don't know what, what the reasoning was, but she's kind of in these very stilted poses and, um, and, and, and sort of maintained the glamorous, ironically, given that she never wanted to be glamorous. So, I, you know, that's sort of a miss, miss, the kind of missed opportunity that that I, I was um, talking about, but also that it was canceled after only one season and she got an Emmy for best actress in a TV show. And then they canceled it. Um, and the, there was supposed to be a spin-off pilot um, in which she plays Josephine little, I think. And like, she's in Hong Kong and really interesting character um, that didn't go anywhere. It was like, it had so, so much potential. And, um, and she, you know, had so much, so many contacts to make it a great show big network and so all the the co-actors let say anthology drama show she had all kinds of different stars working with her um and you know the, it gave her a lot to work with in my opinion much more than the big valley which did turn out to be her big successful tv show but or she's very limited in that series to one character, one, one long, one, you know, long story. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a really, really, uh, it was a missed opportunity. And, and, you know, and the, the other thing to say about it is the stories are these great setups but then they always end up in like very contained way, you know, and then she these pl- plays these strong, powerful women, but somehow she ends up married in the end and living happily ever after. So it's a, another kind of missed opportunity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And more contradictions.
0: More contradictions. <laughs> exactly.
1: So your H chapter, let's move on to H named after William Holden. And he made two films with Stanwick, and you talk about the rumors that, He and Stanwyck had an affair, but that's not what really interests you, or at least that's the sense I got when I read it. It's Holden's age in relation to Stanwyck's and the ages of other men with whom she worked or even twice married. And you talk about her talent for, and this is your phrase, making men. So so let's talk about that. What was her talent for making men, and what do you make of of these age disparities?
0: Well, um, I mean, part of it is that there there was so little – uh, recorded so we know Very little about how actors Learn to act in the Studio era S- You know Stanwyck learned On like by doing you know In, in New York on Broadway uh, But some, William Holden And Robert Taylor And many others uh, Robert Wagner they're like thrown in and Say you know sink or swim And um, And Barbara's would take Mercy on them and help them coach them and and you know help them get along in front of cameras and learn the craft of movie making uh, uh by performing with them with them and sort of being a buffer between them and the director sometimes and so you know i'm saying that just you know there's all all this gossip who knows you know whether she, she and Holden had an affair. I mean, yes, she she married Robert Taylor. Yes, she had an affair with uh, Robert Wagner some uh, years later. Um, but whether, you know, I think it's important to kind of cut through that gossip that level of gossip that is recorded, that's all we know from the trade magazines, you know, and think about skill sharing. And, you know, it could extend to other couples and other kinds of friendships within the industry, the way that actors may have helped themselves and, and taught and taught each other how to act. I mean, the other half of the story is that Stanwyck was so well paid and always got top billing she often was paired <laughs> with actors who weren't that great and weren't just learning. And, you know, yes, she did some, some films with Gary Cooper and uh, Henry Fonda a couple of times, but did she ever get to ch- chance to work with, with, um, uh, 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 Jimmy Stewart? No, you know? And, and so they, because she, her salaries were so big. Um, and, uh, Anyway, so, so she got matched a lot of the time with lesser paid actors. I mean, even Fred McMurray, who's not a great actor, he's great when he's with her, uh, got paid less than her, you know? Um, and and this was, so she has, in order to get people up to her level, she she's had to coach them in a sense.
1: There's that cliche in sports that, that worse teams play better when they play really good teams.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like that. But in, you know, the history of Hollywood, all you get is like gossip and you go through the, the, the uh, fan magazines, you would never know any of this. Nobody asked them any questions. Nobody thought about how, what, how, 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 what they gave to each other in terms of collaborators.
1: Did you come across anything at all in all your research and just your your lifetime of fandom for Barbara Stanwyck about about what directors thought about her, like as somebody to work with, or what what her what her other people on the set thought about? Her? Like, it seems to me like she got a, people really enjoyed working with her. Is that true?
0: Oh yeah, they routinely loved her. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know of any that really she didn't get along with. Um, and uh but you know didn't mean they get they got to work over and over again with her unfortunately because they didn't have that kind of control and um and she didn't i mean billy wilder you know managed to get her you know in a ball of fire uh because uh, you know cuz he uh, he had that kind of pull at the time um But like I said, he wanted her, like everybody wanted to work with her. So yeah, that was, I mean, even Sam Fuller, apparently, uh, Paramount wanted Marilyn Monroe to be in 40 Guns. And Fuller said, no, 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 no.
1: It would have been (laughs) a much different movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... um let's let's go we could go through all the other chapters of your book if we all 26 of them but you have one time you know gambling you have one on her voice which i like barbara Stamwick's voice which is so like just so distinctive right um what about american history and you said before you planned them out which was a surprise to me like i imagined you wrote these out of order but my question now is what's one of the chapter ideas that if that you would have never imagined you know if you had a time machine to go back like you would have said i would have never thought i'd get a whole chapter out of like what
0: uh huh. Well, um, I, I enjoyed writing all of the chapters, um, uh, but the, the chapter on Teresa Harris, uh, I guess, surprised me the most. And it actually has become a, a standalone essay. I kind of expanded it because it grew once I scr- scratched the surface. Um, Teresa Harris is the, the actor who plays Chico, the maid, in Babyface. And she appears again as a singer in Banjo on My Knee, and she plays maids in so many films. Her her career is like is, uh, almost no. It, her career goes up to 1953 or 1954, but there's 103 titles there, mostly mostly maids, and um, and I I I've, I, I found that she was in so many films like uh, Lady from Shanghai, Out of the Past, Jezebel. I walked with a zombie. Um, it also turns out she went to university and went to acting school, and um, you know had more training than Stanwick uh, ever did. And it just was really interesting to see when you look at black characters and you shift the focus and put them in the foreground. And teaching uh, cinema these days, this is what students do all the time. And I was really happy to find a way of doing that and and, and look at at, at Harris's uh, career as, as like a star of the archive. Once you see her, once you recognize her, and then you sort of look at the films differently from her perspective um, and kind of imagine what the, what the backstory of that person, that character she plays might be, you know, things take on a slightly different tinge and really you get slightly different readings um, of it. So of the film. So um, like I say that it was, it was a fun chapter to write and so much that I, I expanded it. It was I had too much. I had too much material to fit into one chapter, and 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 of course her career is much goes on, much bigger than than her few films with Stanwick for sure. But Chico's a pretty amazing character. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So so we mentioned you know Babyface, Dublin, Indemnity, Stella Dallas, Lady Eve's, you, um, the famous ones but I have to ask this for our last question. What are some lesser known Stanwick films that you would recommend that you would say, I've seen them all. I, here's one you haven't seen or two or 10. What are some movies that we should, we should watch? Um,
0: yeah, we've already mentioned quite a few. I mean, the Furies is, is, is a great one. Uh, Anthony Mann Western. Um, I, I mean, you, uh, all I desire she made two films with D- Douglas Sirk. I have a certain fondness for There's Always Tomorrow with Fred McMurray. Um, it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, the early 30s with the Capra films, Ladies of uh, Ladies of Leisure, The Miracle Woman, fantastic film. Um, Thelma Jordan and No Man of Her Own are film noirs that that maybe not everybody knows. Um I I mean, every film has something to offer Jeopardy with Ralph Maker, directed by uh, John Sturgis. (laughs) Whoa. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a 19 early mid fifties, I guess. Um, and, and it's really remarkable, like even, you know, the most poorly written and directed drivel that she does do. She had to do sometimes she would, she would sign these three film contracts and, um, and uh she couldn't she couldn't say no to them. But she still shines. She still makes it worth watching, you know, just because of her performance. Um and uh, the the maybe the last one is uh, her very last uh T V miniseries performance at Thornbirds, um, in which she, she's seventy six she's she she's seventy six years old and playing a woman of that age. And with Richard Chamberlain, just incredible scenes they have together. Yeah, very powerful.
1: Yeah, that's a great list. But I want to go back to one, if I can indulge you for another minute, another film on your list. Um, you said, There's Always Tomorrow with Frederick Murray, right? And I only saw that because a friend of mine said, you have to see There's Always Tomorrow. And I said, I've never seen that. He said, you've never seen, you've got to see it today. And it's a terrific, terrific film. So can you, you mentioned how much you love that film. What is it about that film? I'm so curious that, that, that that's on your list.
0: <laughs> well, I mean their pairing together is is really interesting. He, he kind of they mimic each other. I have some I have some frame enlargements in the book and the is it's amazing. Um and it, the the design of it is nice. I mean it's not Edith Head, but she But, but Stanwyck plays a fashion designer. And again, it's a way she has control over the narrative in a very sort of double-ish way, you know, in this little commentary on, um, on fashion. Um. You know, I, it's it's Cirque. So um, there's the the way that the ensemble acting works is great. Joan Bennett um, is is amazing, and um, it's a really interesting story of the 1950s. Also, and uh, there's all these like parallels with um, uh, all that Heaven allows. You know, the teenagers who don't want their father to have an affair you know like they they can they want to control things um, because they're uppity teenagers 1950s teenagers and they're really nasty <laughs> and but she blows them off you know she talks them down like so yeah i love that
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's great. So, Catherine, it's been great talking with you today. I could go through the whole book and through all all 100 movies, but in the interest of time, we'll stop here. The Cinema of Barbara Stanwyck, 26 short essays on a working star, is available wherever books are sold. You can also get a copy link from the New Books Network website. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Catherine Russell.
0: Thank you so much.